0: introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the eighth audio episode of the semester one course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. This is also the start of unit two. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will discuss, one, colonialism, two, the meaning of decolonization, and three, the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women. Let's get started. Today's song is Arnac by Elisa P. I recommend watching the music video, which I have linked to in the transcript. Elisa P is a Canadian singer and songwriter, born in Céliouit, on the northern tip of Quebec. Her lyrics most often sung in her native Anecdetut, as well as English and French, touch on her life as an adopted child and on meeting her biological mother. Now, as a mother herself, she sings about what it must have meant to her own mother to give up her child. P left her birth village, Saluit, as a teenager and headed to Montreal, leaving her community and her sick mother. The songs from her album, The Ballad of the Runaway Girl, deal with the consequences of her leaving. The word arnak means woman. In an interview with Words and Music of Socan, P discussed her intention behind writing the song arnak. P wanted to pay homage to the indigenous women and girls that are missing or murdered in Canada. Singing an anecdote, Elisa P. sings, you're a man, you're a young boy, you're a father, you're a grandfather. No, don't do it. You're the protector. Elisa P. says, I'm telling them that they're the balance in women's cause, she says. In our history, women have always been close to their families to care for them, while men have had the duty to hunt and understand the territory while respecting our rights. Ultimately, at the end of this role... That was central to who they were. Men lost a part of themselves. I want them to know that it's possible to have both that strength and the kindness of modern men." End quote. Her lyrics speak to the impact of settler colonialism. Today we will be discussing colonialism both within the context of what we call Canada and more globally. In the next lecture, we will, we will be discussing transnational feminisms. To begin, it is important to define a few terms. Colonialism is when a country exerts military, political, and other forms of power and control over foreign territory, imposing control through language, culture, politics, laws, and economy. Settler colonialism is a form of colonialism that seeks to replace the original population of the colonized territory with a new society of settlers. This is done through violent displacement, genocide, and or forced assimilation. As Eve Tuck and K. Wing Yang, write in Decolonization is Not a Metaphor Piece that you read for today. They provide a definition for settler colonialism in the U.S. context, which is also useful for the Canadian context. They write, starting quote, Settler colonialism operates through internal, external, colonial modes simultaneously because there is no spatial separation between metropole and colony. For example, in the United States, many indigenous peoples have been forcibly removed from their homelands, onto reservations, indentured, and abducted into state custody, signaling the form of colonization as simultaneously internal via boarding schools and other biopolitical modes of control, and external via uranium mining on indigenous land in the U.S., southwest, and oil extraction on indigenous land in Alaska. With a frontier, the U.S. military still nicknames all enemy territory, Indian country, that's in quotes, The horizons of the settler colonial nation-state are total and require a mode of total appropriation of indigenous life and land, rather than the selective expropriation of profit-producing fragments. Settler colonialism is different from other forms of colonialism in that settlers come with the intention of making a new home on the land, a homemaking that insists on settler sovereignty over all things in their new domain, end quote. Post-colonialism studies look at the end and the legacies of colonial rule, critically investigating modernity, identity, politics, and the power relationships that existed or continue to exist. An important text within this field is Edward Said's Orientalism from 1978, in which he established the concept of Orientalism in order to describe the West's depiction and portrayal of the East in a contemptuous manner through the years. Neocolonialism is the use of economic, political, cultural, or other pressures to control or influence other countries, especially former dependencies. It is the practice of using capitalism, globalization, cultural imperialism, and conditional aid to influence a developing country instead of the previous colonial methods of direct military control or indirect political control. We can see neocolonialism as an apparatus of neoliberal policies. Geographer David Harvey's book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, draws strong connections between the two. For the next two lectures in particular, and in related readings, you will see and hear some terms like first world, third world, developing nation, developed nation, and global south. The terms first, second, and third world are terms that come from the Cold War period in which Western capitalism and Soviet socialism were pitted against each other. The first world consisted of the U.S., Western Europe, and their allies. The second world in this kind of vocabulary discourse was the so-called communist bloc, the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, and friends. The countries outside of this binary were lumped together as the... Third World by French demographer Alfred Savoy. He wrote of Three Worlds, One Planet in an article published in L'Observatoire in 1952. Many of the Third World countries were former colonies and economically disadvantaged due to years of colonial powers, plundering the country's wealth and resources, and disrupting economic, social, political, and cultural practices in the region. The set of terms wasn't very precise or very useful. Then, the term developing came into use to speak to economic development in countries primarily on the continents of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. However, again, the term creates a hierarchy between countries and positions Western societies as ideal, but as we all know, there are many social problems in Western societies. Positioning West as best is an imperialistic practice. The term global South has come into usage usage since. Again, there are issues with the phrase to indicate richer and poorer countries when one implies that countries south of the equator are poorer when that division is inaccurate for nations such as New Zealand, Argentina, and more. Also, again, we have the problem that factors such as GDP as being held as stand-ins to speak to the entire context of a place. The World Health Organization now uses terms based on World Bank statistics centered on gross domestic product, GDP, There are low income, lower middle income, middle income, and high income. Another term is majority world, which speaks to the economic status of the majority of people in the world. Yet again, this term has issues. These terms all have various issues and are grounded in specific time periods. You will see and hear them in various texts we will be discussing, particularly for the next two lectures. The plan for today is we will first begin by speaking about Chandra Mohanty's classic text, Under Western Eyes, Feminist Scholarship, and Colonial Discourses. She wrote this text in 1986 and uses the term Third World. Chandra Mohanty is a professor of Women's Studies and Gender Studies, Sociology, and Cultural Foundations of Education at Syracuse University. She's a post-colonial and transnational feminist and theorist and focuses on transnational feminist theory, anti-capitalist feminist practice, and anti-racist education. In her piece... Under Western Eyes, Feminist Scholarship, and Colonial Discourses, Mohanty discusses how Western scholarship treats women of the third world. She argues that Western feminism and Western feminists treat third world women as a homogenous group and and ignore the diversity of experiences within this group. She writes, Colonization has been used to characterize everything from the most evident economic and political hierarchies to the production of a particular cultural discourse about what is called the third world. Mahanti talks about the construction of a discourse surrounding the third world woman as a singular monolithic subject. She says that in doing this, Western feminism is participating and being complicit in the colonial legacy and is participating in neocolonialism. She writes, colonization almost invariably implies relation of structural domination and a suppression, often violent, of the heterogeneity of the subjects in question, By acting as if all third-world women are the same, Western feminism is perpetuating colonial violence. This paper is significant, as it highlighted not only the difficulties faced by feminists from the third world in being heard within the broader feminist movement, but the harms that Western feminists were doing. Mahanti wrote on page 334 that, Feminist scholarly practices, whether reading, writing, critical, or textual, are inscribed in relations of power relations which they counter, resist, or even perhaps implicitly support. There can, of course, be no apolitical scholarship. On page 336, she builds upon this by saying that Western feminist scholarship cannot avoid the challenge of situating itself and examining its role in such a global, economic, and political framework. She urges Western feminists to be critical of their role, within larger systems of power and reminds Western feminists that while they might be fighting against gender oppression within their context, they can still oppress others. By exporting these ideals in a blanket way, they do harm. Mahanti outlines a few key things Western feminism needs to not do. One, the first is the construction of women as a category of analysis with identical interests and desires regardless of class, race, location, and more, which implies that gender difference, sexual difference, or patriarchy can be applied universally and cross-culturally. So she's saying, don't do that. The second is the uncritical use of particular methodologies to provide proof of universality. And the third is the political principle Underlying methodologies and analytic strategies. When Western feminists do these three things, it results in what Mahanti describes as the homogenous notion of the oppression of women as a group is assumed, which in turn produces the image of an average third world woman who leads an essentially truncated life. Based on her, she argues that woman as a category of analysis is a critical assumption. That all of us of the same gender across class and culture are somehow socially constituted as a homogenous group. Mohanty argues that in 1986, this framework has characterized much feminist discourse. Remember that Crenshaw wrote about intersectionality in 1989, and while we have discussed the ways that black feminists work throughout the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, black feminists echoed a similar idea to Mohanty's claim that white western upper middle class women's experiences were said as women's experiences and in doing so didn't speak to other women's experiences. So what I'm saying here is that we can see similarities in these kinds of arguments in the 1980s. Mahanti writes that the discursively consensual homogeneity of women as a group is mistaken for the, for the historically specific material reality of groups of women. This results in an assumption of women as an always already constituted group, one which has been labeled powerless, exploited, sexually harassed, etc. by feminist scientific, economic, legal, and sociological discourses. Mahanti argues that this Western feminist homogenization of the category of woman then constructs a first world woman and a third world woman, which unfairly categorizes third world women as one, victims of male violence specifically fgm two women as universal dependents three married women as victims of the colonial process four misunderstands women and familial systems five misconstrues women's relationships with certain religious ideologies and six creates an economic universalization of women basically By homogenizing third-world women as victims of their culture and not looking at cultural-specific conditions and experiences, Western feminism otherizes third-world women. Two quotes that really speak to this are when Mohanty writes, Sisterhood cannot be assumed on the basis of gender. It must be forged in concrete, historical, and political practice and analysis. She builds on this idea when she writes on page 344, Women are constituted as women through the complex interactions between class, culture, religion, and other ideological institutions and framework. They are not women, a coherent group, solely on the basis of a particular economic system or policy. Such reductive cross-cultural comparisons result in the colonization of the complex and contradictions which characterize women of different social classes and cultures. Mahanti argues... That it is important that we, one, do not assume that the concepts such as patriarchy and the family and sexual division of labor are universal. Two, it is important to delve deeper into the meanings and explanations for different phenomena. We must not assume that progress looks the same and means the same for everyone. And three, it is important to understand power relations on a local and global scale. So, some critique of this piece is that it homogenizes Western feminism and does not take into account the multiplicity within Western feminism, such as black feminism. However, this text was a key text when it was published in 1986 to point to the relationship of white Western feminist discourse being exported as a tool of neocolonialism. We can see this in the ways that feminism and gender can be weaponized in development discourses, forcing nations to open up to trade subsequent economic exploitation and in the justification for war. If you're interested in this topic, I encourage you to look at the concept of embedded feminism. Embedded feminism is the attempt of state authorities to legitimize an intervention in a conflict by co-opting feminist discourses and instrumentalizing feminist activists and groups for their own agenda. A key text in this conversation is Columbia University professor goes Spivak's famous post-colonial critique of the relationship between the colonizers and the colonized subjects in her 1983 text, Can the Subaltern Speak? Spivak describes this relationship as a strategy of white men saving brown women from brown men. We can see these tactics, for example, in the Bush administration's policies in Afghanistan. Jasper Puar's work is also very useful here. As Mohanty writes, Sisterhood cannot be assumed on the basis of gender. It must be forged in concrete historical and political practice and analysis. I bring up this quote again because I think it is super powerful and important from this piece. Mohanty's work importantly speaks to feminism working in a colonial context outside of the West. As this course happens in the Canadian context, it is important to also look at the settler colonial context. We hear the word decolonialism a lot. But what does that actually mean? At times it feels like the speaker or writer is just using that term as a buzzword and outside of its context. This brings us for the, to the next text for today. Eve Tuck and K. Wang Yang's 2012 piece, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Eve Tuck is a professor of critical race and indigenous studies at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, University of Toronto. Tuck is Unangang and is an enrolled member of the ULUT community of St. Paul Island, Alaska. k Yang is the Director of Undergraduate Studies and Ethnic Studies Department at University of California, San Diego. The key point of this piece is that, like the title says, decolonization is not a metaphor. Decolonization means land back. Tuck and Yang write that, starting quote, decolonization brings about the repatriation of indigenous land and life. It is not a metaphor for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools. The easy adoption of decolonizing discourse by educational advocacy and scholarship, evidenced by the increasing number of calls to decolonize our schools or use decolonizing methods or decolonized student thinking turns decolonization into a metaphor. They write that while those can be good aims toward social justice, critical methodologies, or approaches that decenter settler perspectives, this is not the same as decolonization. Some of those goals actually have objectives that may be incommensurable with decolonization. For example, many of these structures or institutions that talk about Decolonizing are colonial apparatuses that ground colonial power. You can't decolonize a prison, for example. They write, Decolonization, which we assert is a distinct project from other civil and human rights-based social justice projects, is too far often subsumed into the directives of these projects, with no regard for how decolonization wants something different than those forms of justice. And they further write, decolonization is not a swappable term for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools. They point to the ways that various social justice movements will actively participate in settler colonialism. They look at campaigns from Occupy Wall Street and the Occupy movement and the claims to the land in that kind of language. Here, too, they raise a point of settler feminisms and the complicity of feminist movements with settler colonialism. They point to the ways that so much of the structure of settler society is at odds with true decolonization. This piece is rich with examples and is a piece that we'll look at again in GSFS 300. Some of the critiques of this piece have to do with what this piece means for Black experiences. Tepchi Garba and Sara Maria Sorrentino's Slavery is not a metaphor, a critical commentary on Eve Tuck and Wang Yang's decolonization is not a metaphor, takes issue with Tuck and Yang's treatment of slavery and what it means for the descendants of enslaved peoples forcibly brought to North America. However, what I want you to understand from Tuck and Yang's piece is that decolonizing for Tuck and Yang then means the repatriation of land from settlers to indigenous people. They distinguish this from anti-colonial stances that can include resisting the byproducts and tools of colonialism such as racism, sexism, heterosexism, militarism, etc. Decolonization then cannot simply be a metaphor for resisting any and all oppression. In the American context, they argue for reserving the term for undoing settler colonialism specifically by repatriating land from settlers to indigenous peoples. By making decolonization a metaphor, Tuck and Yang write that settlers are able to assuage their guilt without actually making transformative change. They call this settler moves to innocence that problematically attempt to reconcile settler guilt and complicity and rescue settler futurity. They write that, our goal in this essay is to remind readers what is unsettling about decolonization what is unsettling and what should be unsettling. This piece finishes with the key lines, decolonization offers a different perspective to human and civil rights-based approaches to justice, an unsettling one rather than a complementary one. Decolonization is not an and, it is an elsewhere. I want you to keep this perspective in mind when you hear about decolonizing the curriculum and the danger in making decolonization solely a metaphor. In thinking through their terms of anti-colonial and decolonial, we can think about the implications of the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I have linked to in the transcript. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada was active in Canada from 2008 to 2015, and organized by parties of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. The commission officially concluded in December 2015 with the publication of a multi-volume final report that concluded the school system amounted to cultural genocide. In order to redress the legacy of residential schools and advance the process of Canadian reconciliation, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission made 94 calls to action regarding child welfare, education, language and culture, health, and justice. Within these calls to action, there are calls to establish programs, make policies, issue apologies, and restructure certain institutions. There are also measures surrounding land claims, repatriation. If you haven't read the calls to action, I strongly urge you to do so. Some of the critiques are that the process treated colonialism as a thing of the past where settler colonialism is an ongoing and continual process. Another critique is that the commission functioned on terms still largely dictated by the state. Five years after the call to action were released, another critique is on the outcome of how few of these calls have actually come into effect in a transformative rather than in a symbolic way. In 2018, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, established the Beyond 94 website to track the status of each call to action. I link to the website in the transcript. Five years after the report and conclusion of the TRC, only 10 are marked as complete. And to even say that 10 are complete is not the complete story. The 41st call to action is, We call upon the federal government in consultation with Aboriginal organizations to point a public inquiry into the causes of and remedies for the disproportionate victimization of Aboriginal women and girls the inquiry's mandate would investigate, Investigations into missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls and links to intergenerational legacy of residential schools. The word Aboriginal here is used rather than Indigenous because of how Canadian law addresses Indigenous peoples as either Aboriginal or uses the term Indian. While in December 2015, the federal government announced the launch of a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, Indigenous women and girls continue to be murdered. The problem is in no way solved. The national inquiry's final report, released in 2019, reveals that the persistent and deliberate human and Indigenous rights violations and abuses are the root cause behind Canada's staggering rates of violence against Indigenous women girls, and two-spirit LGBTQ, QIA people. The two-volume report calls for transformative legal and social changes to resolve the crises that has de- devastated Indigenous communities across the country. The final report is comprised of the truths of more than 2,380 family members, survivors of violence, experts, and knowledge keepers, sharing over two years of cross-country public hearings and evidence gathering. It delivers 231 individual calls for justice directed at governments, institutions, social service providers, industries, and all Canadians. I've linked to the report and the supplementary report for Quebec in the transcripts. Chapter 4 of the report focuses on colonization as gender oppression and the ways in which colonial violence persists in femicide and the murder of thousands of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Commissions are formed, and reports are released, and women and girls continue to be killed. Elisa B. Song, which started today's class, speaks to this ongoing epidemic. In addition to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women, the ongoing legacy of the violence of residential schools continues. During the spring and summer of 2021, the unmarked graves of thousands of children were uncovered at several sites of former residential schools in Canada, including 251 at Canloops, BC, and 751 in Saskatchewan. Residential schools are not a thing of the far past. With the last residential school closing in 1996, there are survivors who are only in their 30s who were forced to attend these institutions. As we continue through the semester, I want you to keep in mind that decolonization is not a metaphor. Colonization is still ongoing. In the context that Mohanty discusses, Western feminists must be mindful to not homogenize the experiences of women around the world. Our feminisms must not further the project of Western imperialism and neocolonialism. Tuck and Yang hold us to account for ongoing settler colonial violence. They tell us that our projects of social justice are not the same as decolonization. Where there is violence and oppression, there is resistance and resilience. We can see that in the Red Power Movement beginning in the 1960s. We can see this in political activism and community building by Indigenous peoples. We can also see this in art. As we finish today's lecture, I want to direct you to a video interview with Métis artist Christy Bellacourt speaking about the Walking with Our Sisters Memorial and Ceremony, which represents the unfinished lives of thousands of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people who have gone missing or were murdered across Turtle Island. This video was produced by Muskrat Magazine. Muskrat is an online indigenous arts and culture magazine that honors the connection between humans and traditional ecological knowledge by exhibiting original works and critical commentary. I'll play some of the video now. If you click on the link to the video, there are also transcripts included.
1: So if they, people will come in and uh, on their left side there'll be a box, it's a cedar bent wood box that's been beaded uh, and made uh, by people in Haida Gwaii and sent here um, and they can take the tobacco and walk around and put their prayers into the tobacco much the same way you would put prayers into tobacco around a sacred fire um, and then you walk clockwise around the exhibit space and at the end of the path there's um, another box to be able to place the tobacco and at the end of the exhibit the elders um, are advising the keepers of the vamps on what to do with the, everybody's tobacco so it's treated everything follows traditional protocols everything we do is following instructions from elders um, we're bringing indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, ceremonial practices into this space because what we're doing here is not Um, an exhibit. Even though I use the word an exhibit it's not an exhibit, it's a memorial, it's a commemoration and it's ceremony. It's ceremony from the very start um, to the very end of each and every uh, display in the sense that from the very beginning this space is smudged, the elders are present, we hold um, circles in the morning, pipe ceremonies, circles in the evening. Um, The whole thing is is ceremony and uh and that's what's required in order to properly acknowledge and honor the women's lives uh, we we can't do it by gawking we can't do it by seeing pictures we can't do it by by staring from an outside outsider's perspective we must do it by bringing their lives and the acknowledgement of the value of their lives within us and within our hearts. How did this um, memorial come about? Uh, You know, it's really hard to say. Um, Sometimes things just happen the way they're supposed to happen, and that's about the only way I can describe it. It's just uh, the idea popped into my head and why it came into my head. I don't know, but it could have come into anybody's and uh, I put the call out on social media and next thing you know everybody must have been feeling the same way I was <laughs> because they all uh, got to work putting in their love and um, their care into every every stitch of every pair of babs, and you really feel that emotion when you come into the space and uh, that's one thing that I really appreciate about this project is uh, As we go along, it becomes stronger and stronger. We are not, um, the elders' participation is not tokenism. We're not asking them to come in and just do an opening prayer or do a pipe ceremony. We are being guided by them. Whatever they say goes, we follow what they say, and we set this place up like a lodge and we follow it. We follow their guidance, and that is uh, something that I think is, that I've learned. The thing that I've learned is um, the resilience of um, of Indigenous women is, is incredible. I mean, after all the things that we have endured for hundreds of years, and that is something else, is that we're, I originally asked for 600 pairs. We got 1,726 sent in, and I think that that was, I don't know what you would call it, it was meant to be. Because it acknowledges the lives of women that is beyond the past 20 years. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years. So we don't know how many of our women have gone missing. We don't know how many have been murdered. Uh, but we know there's a lot more than 600. And uh, through our, our history. So what this is doing is really um, acknowledging all of their lives, the ones that maybe were never talked about. Sometimes people who who are murdered their their families don't want to talk about it anymore because it hurts too much and then you know once that generation goes then they're never spoken of again and I think what this is doing is just acknowledging the entire last two three four hundred years of our colonial history and the abuse of indigenous women on a grand scale
0: I want to leave you with Belcourt's words to end today's class all of the videos, songs, images, and graphics used in podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F Panska Stranska, and Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's a.wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and private site, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast and is used for educational purposes.